Hello, we are in the second seg segment of chapter one and uh, we're still in the early stages and before we could go ahead and do the exegesis of scripture, I want us to go back briefly and explain something that um, would highly explain my viewpoint on salvation. If you're a, theolo Sorry. If you're a theologian, you definitely know that there is a viewpoint on salvation and there is another viewpoint on salvation. So, I want to address that. In the previous segment, we saw that Peter was unlikely a candidate of the Holy Spirit to write this book. He writes about salvation, sanctification, suffering, and service. And in each of these areas, he had failed. But God uses failures, right? God used the ones who are weak and have been broken to do his work on earth. This is a beautiful principle for ministry. And perhaps it is through failure and brokenness that we become those who speak boldly, as does Peter, on the greatness of God's love, mercy, and grace. Okay? Let me give you a story here of what I got to experience or to to see. A Christian man lost his home and his flour mill when a flood washed them away. He was brokenhearted and discouraged as he stood surveying his loss. Oh my goodness. And just then he saw a glittering object that had been uncovered by the flood. It was gold. The disaster he thought he had made him a beggar had actually made him wealthy. So, even in our sense today, the Lord often works through troubles to break us away from the things to show us the better treasures of his love and power. Now, thankfully, we should be that in every storm of affliction, we have the assurance that the Lord has a good purpose in view. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter understands salvation here. We talked about verse 1. Verse 1 B says, Who are chosen? Verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, by the may grace, peace, and, uh, and peace be yours in fullest measure. So, the very first phrase, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God brings up controversy. And I want to discuss this. I want to talk about this because this is where you will clearly see my view of salvation. Peter is writing to believers. We saw that. And there are four points here that can, can clearly get our view in check here. There are things that can be said to a believer regarding his position in Christ that cannot be applied to an unbeliever. Alright? The word chosen there in the Greek has a dative plural adjective to it and is most often translated as elect or the elected ones. So, we could read this, those who are elected. So, as an adjective, it is descriptive of a noun and the noun is implied and it is the readers so it is you and me as well as those living 2000 years ago elected ones describe christians how did this take place however again the passage says according to the foreknowledge of god the father by the sanctifying work of the spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Notice that Peter motions all three members of the Trinity here, Father, Spirit, and Son. No modalism here. So what Peter is doing is not giving a process or a point by point or a one, two, three of what took place at salvation. Instead, Peter is giving us a description of what member or what each member of the Godhead did to bring about salvation. There is a man called Harry 
Ironsides who tried to explain the idea of election by saying the unbeliever stands at the door over which is inscribed whoever wills. He walks through the door and looks up the two inscriptions on the side that says you are the elect of God. Well, not too bad, right? I could go along with that illustration if we added one thing to it. John 10 verse 9 says, I am the door. That's Jesus saying, right? I am the door. If anyone, as in anyone, enters through me, he shall be saved. Let me, let me take you through this. Let me start with the Father. This election took place according to the standard. The standard, the advanced knowledge of God, the Father. That was the standard. God knows a lot, people of God. As a matter of fact, he knows more than everything. One of God's attributes is that he is all-knowing, omniscient. The omniscience knows all the knowable that will happen and all the alternatives that could happen. Just think of all, think of all the what-ifs in your life. What if I had taken that job? What if I had gone to school? What if I had moved there? What, would I, what if I had married her instead? God knows all the possibilities of our lives, all of those. Every member of the human race that has ever existed, he has known all your what-ifs. He has already gone through your what-ifs. He has known it all. Now, for knowledge is something very different because for knowledge knows what will happen. Meaning, God created man with free will, right? And this is where the view now becomes so heavy. God created man with free will. This does not in any way intrude upon his sovereignty. A king or a dictator is sovereign, right? But does not control the thoughts or actions of his subjects. But those thoughts or actions can violate the desire of the sovereign ruler. From eternity past, God's foreknowledge cause him to know that man would fall, that mankind would sin, because we are sinners, and that some would turn from their sin and fallen condition and desire a relationship with God. Now, a sovereign God could have said, well, that is just too bad. You violated my standards, so tough luck. But instead, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God provided a savior for mankind because his foreknowledge knew, he knew in his foreknowledge that some would want salvation. Foreknowledge does not dictate what will happen. It provides what will happen out of love, mercy, and grace. It provides for what will happen out of love, mercy, and grace. Now, in America, on the September 11th of 2001, many people watched the second plane fly into the second uh, World Trading Center tower. We knew at that moment, beforehand, it would have been yes a few seconds but we knew what it was going to do right we had foreknowledge but we did not cause it to happen did we in the same way god knows who will desire to be saved he does not dictate who will be saved but he knows and because he is god he can provide a savior there is no conflict in this with the sovereignty of God and with the free will of man. No, 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 no. And to say that there is really, and to say that is really, is really us saying that God is not sovereign. So, we are elected according to the standard and for knowledge of God. According to God's advanced knowledge is what I mean. And we are elected in Christ. When we believe in Christ for eternal life, we are placed 
in Christ and there we share in all he is and all he has. And he is the only elect one. In Isaiah 42 verse 1, Isaiah chapter 45 verse 4 and in Luke chapter 9 verse 35, God the Father calls Jesus Christ my elect one, my only elect one. We are elect only in him. If we want to see a progression of this, we can look at Revelation 17 verse 14 which says he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called are the called and chosen and faithful. So if God was electing some to salvation and others to damnation, we would be chosen and then called. But no, it is the other way around. So The job description of the father ours in our salvation is knowing and providing. Now the role of the Holy Spirit like I said last time is that it 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 took place in the sphere of power of the sanctifying or dedicating of the spirit. The word work is not there. Now we have the Holy Spirit solving a problem. You desire to be saved not to have a relationship with God your creator God knew this in eternity past made a provision for this in his son Jesus Christ but you are dead you are spiritually dead you are totally deprived total total depravity correctly taught looks at our place and position it does not automatically equal inability Mm-mm. depravity and inability are not synonyms However, depravity and being spiritually dead are separated from God. Sorry, depravity and being spiritually dead separated from God does not mean that we cannot understand spiritual things. Romans 3 verse 10 to 11 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And believing man is not righteous. He does not understand. He does not seek God. Paul puts it in this order because it is the in the reverse order that the Holy Spirit undertakes to solve these problems in the unbeliever who desires to be saved. Meaning the first process is seeking. God comes as a result of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We come to the point where we know it is impossible for us to save ourselves by any merit system of works, rituals or religion. The Holy Spirit will convict like John 16 verse 8 says of sin or righteousness or judgment and the result is to seek God's solution to man's biggest problem which brings us to the next stage of understanding first corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised when the unbeliever hears god people of god it is it would be very foolish to him where it not for the holy spirit giving him understanding The Holy Spirit is the one that acts as the human spirit so that the gospel can be understood. If you have ever witnessed to someone and had them totally go blank, even totally understand what you are saying, there was not the work of understanding on the part of the Holy Spirit because the person was not seeking God as a result of the convicting work of the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 says, "And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord the third thing that happens is righteousness convicted by the spirit concluding it is impossible to save self given the gospel and be able to understand it because of the holy spirit right the person puts faith alone in christ alone so god then imputes directly to him absolute righteousness and the holy spirit baptizes the believing sinner into Christ where he shares in Christ's righteousness acts chapter 1 verse 5 john baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the holy spirit second corinthians 5 verse 21 he made him who knew no sin be seen on behalf 
on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Peter chapter 1, verse 2, what we just described is stated as the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The word sanctifying there is the Greek word that can be translated as dedicating. Dedicating. Now, this is the Holy Spirit's dedicating work in us. He is dedicated through convicting, causing us to understand for a purpose. And here is where the work of Christ is stated. That you may obey Christ Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. The word obey there is a noun. It is a synonym for belief. As John 3 verse 36 would tell us. Sprinkled is also a noun. It is found here and in Hebrews 12 24 that we read in the previous um, previous segment where it tells us that the new covenant is better than understanding of good and evil because of the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. A finished once and for all sacrifice. So both are nouns, but obey is a feminine statement and sprinkled is a masculine statement. What do I mean here? Listen carefully. This means that we obey or believe as a result of the Spirit's work, but we are actively all the time under the forgiveness of the blood of Christ. And that is the Holy Spirit and what he wants. For you to believe in Christ and recognize that you are forgiven. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Now, if we fail to carefully study that First Peter chapter 2 or chapter 1 verse 2, as we have just touched and if we are if we are to take this verse alone out of context, ignoring all other salvation passages, we might walk away thinking God chose us to be saved and the Holy Spirit gave us the ability to believe. If you were to take that position, you will end up eliminating free will from their human race and be left with an unspeakable horror of choosing some to go to heaven and others go to hell. And we call that horrible heresy Calvinism. That is what Calvinism is. Now, let me talk about Calvinism in a, in, in a short, short, brief way. Calvinism developed in the Reformation in Europe in the 1500s. It was heavily influenced by our own Augustine of Hippo, one of the fathers of the faith, or the fathers of history. The basic teaching is that God is sovereign and thus man cannot have free will. Did you hear that? God chose who will be saved and who will not be saved. Volition, free will, decision has no part in salvation according to Calvinism. Now, the era of Calvinism and the era of Lordship salvation fit together hand and glove. A few years ago, they were seen as two separate issues. But in the past couple of years, the Lordship folks and the Calvinists have come together. And that is understandable. Why? If you have to make Jesus Lord of all to be saved, how can you do that unless you are chosen to be saved, regenerated prior to salvation? God gives his elect the power to make his son Lord of all. But that is totally opposing to the Bible's position of free grace. And that is grace and faith at salvation. Dave Hunt has written a great book on the era of Calvinism caused God simply and accurately called. What love is this? So please try to find this book. It will really help you. It will help you address a lot of issues. Five points of Calvinism here. Now, the first doctrine, because me, to me this is not real. This is not true. It can't be. 
the doctrine of Calvinism is for some reason gaining a lot of ground starting from the US and coming into Africa. These are the five points. Now, I don't agree with all of these things. I agree with some. I just don't agree with all of them. Total depravity is the first one, including the inability to have faith. The second one is unconditional election, which is a dual election of some to heaven and others to hell. The third one being limited atonement, meaning Christ only died for the sins of the elect. Irresistible grace is the fourth point, meaning man cannot resist grace and there's no free will to do so. Fifth is perseverance of the saints. If you are saved, you will do good works. So these are the five points of Calvin. Most of us know John 3 verse 16, right? Uh, we can be able to cite it. We know it. Uh, but do you know the verses on the other side of it? In light of this thing, I'm at best a... How can I call it? I, I, I am not Calvinist. I am pre-Calvinist, if you can call it. I, I am prior to Calvin, no one had a problem with God's sovereignty and man's free will. And guess what? I do not today. I am a pre-Calvinist. I don't have problems with it, with the free will and the doctrine of, 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 of the, the doctrine of, of, of free will and God's sovereignty. It doesn't make sense to me. Now I want you to see the other side of the verses of John 3 verse 16. What does God think of tulips? And tulips is just the 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 the, the, the word of uh, the five points of Calvin. Tulips being total, then under conditional, limited, irresistible, perseverance, and all that. What what does God think about this? John 3 verse 15b to 17. Listen to me very carefully. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Doesn't that sound to me, or doesn't sound to me, that God is choosing who is going to be saved and choosing who is going to be lost here, right? It, it isn't. It isn't. Look at what Peter says, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again and to live to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, what is Peter doing in stating this at the very state of this letter, at the very start of this letter? He wants these believers to understand their salvation, but more so to understand their position as believers in Christ. All that they have by the way of position, power, and presence of God in their lives. That is why he ends verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May, which is a potential for every believer, but this is very rare. It is an optative mood, which means it is not happening now for these believers, but Peter wishes it was happening. It is also an aorist tense and passive mood, which looks at this happening in a point of time and the believer receiving grace and peace being passive. You cannot manufacture grace and peace. 
you can only receive it from the source who is God, strengthening by the fact that grace and peace are both feminine nouns. So, what is the point in time that every believer has but many do not take advantage of, in which you can receive and have multiplied to you? When you study the Word of God and learn you uh, about you being chose, the chosen one or a chosen one of God, foreknown by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, one who is saved by faith and lives by faith under the forever forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If that is not grace, and if that does not bring peace, nothing will. So I felt in this part, before we can continue with the exegesis of scripture or the exposition of scripture, I wanted to address the issue that I left hanging in the previous segment of chapter 1. So now we are going into the remaining part of chapter 1. Be blessed. Alright, so we're continuing with chapter 1, and I want to um, go on and quote John Newton, who lived in the period of 1725 to 1807, which is 07. He said, and I quote, I always remember two things, that I'm a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior, end quote. I was addressing my point of view of salvation and uh, explained that in, in detail. But I want us to move with the words of Newton here to go on further in opening our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 from verses 2 to 5. And in the opening verses of 1 Peter, what Peter is laying for his readers and also for us, a foundation for all that he is going to talk about in this letter. Remember what Peter will teach, alright? Salvation, sanctification, suffering, and service. I'll keep referring to these. So, Peter begins, right, with salvation in verses 1 to 5, and he describes our salvation under three points. First, the source of our salvation, then the hope of our salvation, and thirdly, the security of our salvation. When I go into looking at the source of our salvation, we noted that Peter begins his epistles with some very hard theological concepts. He describes the work of the Trinity, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation that he caused our election at the end of the verse. And the work of God in our salvation in no way negates our free will. I said that previously. Nor is our free will created in us by God himself in conflict with his sovereignty. Nor does man's free will in any way take away from the sovereignty of God. All right, And I want you to consider again John 6 verse 37 that says, and I quote, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That describes divine election right there. Alright, let me continue. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And that is free will. So, we are elected, we are chosen in Christ. So, as we consider our salvation, the very foundation of our Christian life and our eternity or our eternal destiny with God, what I want us to do is to be, sub to be surprised that here we are, over 2,000 years after the cross, that believers today are so very confused uh, about salvation. The confusion we hear today on what is required for man to be saved basically falls 
into three categories. The first category is salvation requires some work on the part of man. The second one is salvation is a sovereign choice by God and the elects whom will be saved and who will not be saved. This is the era of Calvinism that I examined last time. And thirdly, that salvation can be lost and there can be no assurance of salvation. Now, while we might see these as three distinct intrusions upon salvation by grace and faith, they can really go hand in hand. Let's examine them, right? So let's talk about Lordship salvation. This is the idea that resurfaces about every 75 years <laughs> and has also been called commitment salvation. And the teaching here is that the believing sinner must make a total commitment to Christ in order to be saved. They say those who hold this erroneous position are fond of saying that if you do not make Jesus Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Now this really front loads the gospel because man must do something prior to faith alone is what this view is trying to say. It means man must be willing and even capable of making Jesus Lord of his life prior to simple faith. But let's look at two parts of the gospel, the message and the method. The message describes what God did to provide salvation. Christ came from heaven, took on human nature, lived a sinless life, although tempted, he did not sin, and went to the cross and died, spiritually and physically, paying the price, which is death, for man's sin. That is the message. Now, here's the question. What must I do to be saved? And here's where the Lordship commit, the, the Lordship, uh, the commitment and the works people run quickly into error. The message can be clear, but what is required on the part of man can be very wrong. Make Jesus Lord of all, repent, be baptized, join a particular church, read your Bible, walk down the aisle, make a public confession of faith. All of these things other than believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved according to Acts chapter 16 verse 31. So, there can be a right message and yet a very wrong method in salvation or both can be wrong. Whatever is required of man must be void of works. So, only simply faith alone in Christ gains salvation. Now we might look at the era of lordship or commitment and wonder how can that have any compatibility with the era of Calvinism. And that was the attitude about five years ago. Even more years ago to be to be to be to be exact. But here is what has happened in the midst of this kind of theology climate. The Lordship people we are confronted not only by those of us who hold to free grace, which is also known as grace and faith, but also to the Calvinists who said that what they were doing was a work of salvation or work for salvation kind of doctrine. And it is. And a pretty big work on that. Because to make Jesus Lord of all my life, is something that I hope one day to achieve. But even then, not by my powers or by my might, but through the work of the Holy Spirit living in me. So they responded by saying that while it was a work, God gives the ability prior to faith to do that work. So man is regenerated prior to belief in Christ and that regeneration as a sovereign work of God allows man to make Jesus Lord of all. And it was only a very short step to saying that God did this for some while he does not do it for others. So God elects 
who will be able to make his son lord of all and that made lordship and Calvinism bed fellows in a grievous era of salvation. So, what we can see over the past few years, how lordship and Calvinism have climbed into the bed of heresy together, we may wonder how that new alliance can be compatible with those who say that a Christian can lose their salvation. <laughs> now, <laughs> there are those who say that a person can be saved, then sin to such a degree that salvation can be lost. Then they can be saved again. Then can lose it again, and on and on. But then in the very first Peter, first letter of Peter, in verse 5 of chapter 1, we'll, we will look at the assurance of our salvation. But with Lordship Calvinism, uh, that kind of theology, it is not that you can lose salvation, but that you never really know for sure that you are saved. The questions always come. Are you one of the elect? Did you really make Jesus Lord of all? Or did you do it right? Did it take? Or maybe you are not chosen of God. And even though you believe in Christ, you cannot be saved. Even though you act like a Christian, you are really not a Christian because you either did it wrong or were not elected by God to do it right, whatever it is. John MacArthur was pressed on this once. In one of the only times he was willing to debate the issue and finally had to admit that you will never really know if you were saved. If you did make Jesus Lord of all until you die and go to heaven. The common phrase used in this is, they were not really saved to begin with. How tragic. And how sad, right? And what I have for three, three years believed in studying and getting to properly grasp this while I have been doing this, it is one of the initial attacks of Satan against a new Christian that I've observed. And we now see that evil idea being promoted by Lordship Calvinism crowds. So, how can you ever get on with living if you are wondering if you were ever born into a human race to begin with? How can you live in a Christian centered or Christ-centered life if you are wondering if you were ever born again. You would think that in 2000 years, we as Christians would be able to figure out that salvation is the work of God and extend it to man by his grace and we respond by faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, the biblical position is one of doing the work and man accepting that work by faith. We call that free grace, but I think the more accurate term would be grace and faith. When it takes every passage of scripture on salvation, and when we try to, to, to not just select a little here and there, the full counsel of God will allow a clear passage to interpret the unclear and the irreducible minimum of the gospel will sound forth loudly and clear. As John said at the end of his gospel tract, the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son the Son of God, or is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have 
life in his name. Or as Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts chapter 16 verse 31. So, all mankind has faithful has faith, sorry. God created a man with a measure of faith. We do countless things every day by faith. But when it comes to salvation, to having eternal life, there is only one name given under heaven where man can be saved. And that is the name, the person, the unique person of the universe, Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus as John wrote, and we have life now and forever in his name. I wonder if Peter even had a clue that what he was writing in the first two verses of this letter would be the stuff of controversy down through the centuries of the church. I don't think he did, but the Holy Spirit did, right? So let's go back to the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, which says, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So what is Peter doing in stating this at the very start of his letter? You see, he wants these believers reading to understand their salvation, but more so to also understand the person as believers, or the, their position rather, as believers in Christ. All that they have by way of position, power, and presence of God in their lives, they needed to know. That is why he ends verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. The statement is literally, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This same statement is also made in Second Peter, Chapter 1, verse 2. May. This is a potential for every believer. But this is very rare. It is an opetative or an opatative, optative mood, which is implied as the beginning of this statement from the main verb, which is multiply and fullest measure. The optative means it is not happening now for these believers, but Peter wishes it was, right? So the mood here is a wish or a desire kind of mood. It is also an aorist tense and passive voice which looks at the happening in a point of time and the believer receiving grace that results in peace which is passive. So, you cannot manufacture grace, and grace is the only way to have peace. You can only receive it from the source who is God, strengthened by the fact that grace and peace are both feminine nouns. Peace here is in three dimensions. Like I mentioned before, First of all, a peace with God that comes at salvation and our assurance of salvation. We know we are saved because the Bible tells us we are saved. First John chapter 5 verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So, in our salvation, we know we belong to God and that we have peace with Him. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is the peace of God. This is the peace that Jesus spoke of when He told His disciples about a peace that passes all human understanding. That's John 14 verse 27 which says, Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. This peace of God 
is the greatest defense against things like fear, anxiety, depression you will ever know. And it is from God. Thirdly, there is a peace with others. Even those who do not want peace with you cannot distract from the peace you can have with them or towards them. That's impressive, right? That's great. Romans 12 verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you. As it depends on who? On you. Be at peace with all men. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 13 says, Live in peace with one another. Listen, we can only have this peace when we depend by faith upon the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Now, back to our first Peter chapter 1 verse 2, where Peter wants those he loves and writes to, to have this peace that can only come from the grace of God. And that grace would come in points of time in the life of the Christian. So, what is the point in time that every believer has, but many do not take advantage of, in which you can receive grace and have multiplied, which is errorist, passive, and optative to you? When? When you study the word of God and learn about you being chosen one of God, foreknown by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, one who is saved by faith and lives by faith and under the forever forgiveness of Jesus Christ, secured for you by his death upon the cross. If that is not grace and if that does not bring peace, nothing will. Listen, when God gives something, you can expect it to be great and you can expect it to do what God intended it to do. Well, God is the giver of grace and there are five things you can expect from grace when it is taught and when it is caught. First, grace, oh sorry, a greater appreciation for God and his gifts to you and others is one thing that you can expect from grace when it is taught and caught. A greater appreciation for God and his gifts to you and to others. Every gift from life itself to salvation, the gift of friends and the fellowship of your church, the gift of laughter, the gift of freedom you can expect from grace. Two, you can expect to spend less time and energy on being critical and concerned about the choices of others. This one is good because we are often caught in this, right? Spending more time and energy being concerned about the choices that others made rather than focusing on ourselves. Three, when you grasp grace, you be, be being to live in the context where you begin to live in the context of freedom you begin to live in the context of freedom meaning you become less petty regarding others or even yourself number four you can expect to become more tolerant and less judgmental this is cool this is cool because this this is often the case even with believers sadly External things will not mean as much as you, as you, as to you, as eternal things do. You will begin to cultivate and desire a pursuit, even more grace, to express mercy and spiritual love. Number five, you can expect with grace to take a giant step towards maturity in Christ. So these five steps would help you see what grace brings and what you can expect from it. Have you ever had anything in life that just exploded and you, 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 you it exploded in your, your little circles of life into a much bigger one? 
I mean, some event that gave you a quest for life that you had never known before. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to paint something here. In these moments, your world expands and the view ahead of you looking to endless opportunities and endless experiences is big and that is what grace can do to awaken you to awaken your life right it expands your life and you will soon find that you cannot live or you cannot live without it you are free and that's what grace does. Let me conclude with one more thing that awakens to grace or that awakening grace will do in your life. When you come to grips with grace, you will want to tell others about it. You will want to tell others about it. Grace is a gift and you will want to share that gift with others, right? You will want others to be saved. You will want to know the, that others that you know and love will be with you in heaven. And I will make a commitment to you Maybe you're just learning how to share the gospel. Maybe you are uncertain of what to say. Bring them through and I promise you that they will hear the gospel through these podcasts. They will hear the gospel of grace and faith. And they will have an opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We are so free in Christ. Share with others that freedom that comes by faith. Amen.